Almighty God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've sent your son to the world to give us life and to bring healing and wholeness. God, we desperately need that in this present moment. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us as we take up your word together. That you would speak words of life and truth to us that change us and renew us for our, our, our aims to follow you, O oh God. We love you. And we come, Lord, with ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Good morning. This is a, a time of much anxiety and strife and fear and tension. Many of us are anxious about the presidential election that will take place in two days. And what will happen if... The results aren't what certain people want, and uh, many businesses are boarding up their windows again to prepare for something that none of us would like to see. We also have the anxiety around the, the pandemic. Europe is shutting down. We saw a record number of cases in the U.S. on Friday, 99,000, and uh, our single-day record. And patience is wearing thin, I would say. At least I can feel that. We all, in some ways, are experiencing fear and anxiety, strife, and perhaps maybe frustration is the emotion that we can most closely identify with. And I bring all of that up to say that when we come to worship the living God, we don't leave those things at the door. We bring them into worship with us, and we bring our burdens and the groanings of our world before God in prayer. That is our calling. It's not to ignore the context, but to recognize that our worship is always taking place in the context of today and whatever today may bring. We come, though, to worship to recognize that the circumstances in which we find ourselves are not our primary context. Instead, our primary context is God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that we are his people with a particular past, and a particular hope and future in, in front of us. And we come into his presence to be reminded of that, of that fact that we are shaped by him most of all. On this day, All Saints Day, we are reminded as we come to worship of all of those, our Christian brothers and sisters who have gone before us, all of those who have died knowing Jesus and are now in the presence of Christ as the church triumphant. All of those who from Hebrews 11 and 12 make up that great cloud of witnesses that is now surrounding us as we aim to run the race with endurance that God has set before us, keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus and longing to run well. We are to be strengthened and encouraged by the witness of those known and unknown who have run this race before us and who are now in the presence of Christ. And as we gather for worship, we long to have our eyes lifted up from the wind and the waves around us and set back upon Jesus, our King, the one who is ruling and reigning. And our study of the Gospel of John entitled Come and See gives us some of these ways of pursuing a vision of God. Jesus was sent into the world at the end of the prologue, we're told, to exegete or to explain the Father to us, to make God known to us. And so as we look to him, we see our God. And I trust our lives are rooted again and anchored again in his presence and power and rule. Today we get to take up 
a story in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. It is the third sign that Jesus performs, and it is the healing of a lame man. And this story gives us a number of surprises. First, there's a surprising place, then a surprising encounter, and finally, a surprising response. So first, a surprising place. We're told in verse 1 that Jesus goes back to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. And we're not sure, we're not told what feast this is. I think largely because John wants us to keep our focus on the day which it is, which is the Sabbath day. We're at a pool of Bethesda near the Sheep Gate, verse 2, where there are five covered colonnades. The Sheep Gate is mentioned in Nehemiah 12, 39 on the northern part of Jerusalem. Yet until the late 19th century, there was no archaeological evidence of a pool in Jerusalem. And that was cited by many critical Western scholars to perpetuate and defend a thesis that John's gospel was written long after the time of Jesus by someone who had no knowledge really of Jerusalem. But all of that changed in the 1890s when there was an archaeological discovery of a pool, actually two pools on the northeastern side of Jerusalem, which would have been surrounded by a colonnade. There are columns in this uh, discovery and would have been separated by a, a covered um, porch with columns as well, creating five colonnades, showing that John actually was acquainted with and familiar with the geography of Palestine and of Jerusalem and the Jewish customs of the day. That this story, though not recorded in the synoptics, is a story that has good rootedness in the history of Jesus's life and ministry. James Charlesworth at Princeton has spent much of his research showing us the attentiveness of John's gospel to the Palestinian geography and to the Jewish customs of the day. So this is where we are, this pool, which is now near the modern-day church of St. Anne in the northeastern side of Jerusalem that can actually be visited. And we're told in verse 3 that here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. It was not uncommon in antiquity for pools to be healing sanctuaries. The connection between water and healing was made by many cultures in the ancient world. And in this case, there was a superstition around the pool that it was a place of healing when an angel of the Lord would come and stir up the waters that the first one who could get into the water would be healed. That's actually verse 4, which if you look at your Bible is probably not in your text because that gloss, an editorial gloss, is not found in the most reliable of the manuscripts in the, in the, in the manuscript tradition. And so it's been left out of most of our modern day translations, rightly so. But it bears witness to why these people were gathered around this pool. Why this pool had attracted people who were incapacitated or chronically sick. And as such were certainly written off by their culture in that day. Said a surprising place. This is where Jesus went. When he entered Jerusalem. He didn't go to the places of mass appeal. He didn't go to where the people who had gravitas in that culture would have been celebrating the things of the Jewish festival. No, he went to this pool. The early 18th century commentator Matthew Henry writes, Observe, when Christ came up to Jerusalem, he visited not the palaces, 
but the hospitals. Jesus, this young rabbi, creating quite a stir, having done some works already, he goes to this pool where there are people who are outcasts because of their condition. And this is so instructive to us. It begs the question, where is the church to be? Will we go to the places of the outcasts, the hurting and the diminished? This is where Jesus went. And Jesus says later in John chapter 12, verse 26, where I am, my servant will be also. Many years ago, I heard something that I've been haunted by ever since. A friend of mine who planted a church here in Boston was talking with a a city councilman from Roxbury. They were having lunch together and he asked the city councilman what his perspective was on the church. This man was not a Christian, didn't identify as a follower of Jesus. But he gave my friend an honest response. He said, the church is unapproachable and elitist. He was suggesting that the church on the whole is disengaged from the needs of the city. Prone to ride above the pain, the brokenness. Prone to deal with our own only. Which of course is an obligation that we're given by Jesus later in this gospel. We are to care for one another, of course, but not to the exclusion of caring for those in need. We are prone to get busy with our own programs and our own interests, our own preferences, and to avoid getting our hands dirty in the mess of the world around us and all of its needs. I do think this is a timely word for the church in the midst of this unique moment in history where we all feel like we are in need in one way or another. And if you feel that way today, if you feel particularly down and needy, of comfort and of encouragement. I do want you to know that God, our God, is a God who longs to meet you in that place, to comfort you, to encourage you, to remind you of his love and his sovereign power over the world and over your life. And at the same time, I want you to know that all of us are called to go to that pool, the places of need in our city, and to show up in those places where the need is overwhelming as Jesus did. And I would suggest to you that if you are indeed really struggling, that this movement to go and meet the needs of another is actually one of the best ways to finding a sense of health and comfort in our own lives. Something that would address the malaise that we may have fallen into in the midst of this pandemic. To focus on the needs of another. This is what our city needs from the body of Christ right now. Whatever happens on Tuesday, whatever continues to happen with the numbers around the pandemic, we need, this city needs the body of Jesus to go to the pool, to go to the places of need, the people of need, and to demonstrate the love and care of God in those places. How can we do that? How can our families do that? How can we as a church family continue to do that? And I say continue because I'm so encouraged by the work that has been going on through our city engagement ministry over the last several months during this pandemic. Many, many volunteers from this church and from other churches around the city have joined us in the work that we've been doing in the city. And I want that and I long for that to continue. It's a surprising place, but perhaps it's not surprising at all. Because those who were invalids, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed around that pool, they represent all of us when God visits his world in his son. There is not one person who's not in need, deep need, who isn't sick, deeply sick, 
who needs the touch and ministry of the powerful God of Jesus to meet us. It's no surprise that this is where Jesus goes. Will we follow him there? But there is secondly in this surprising place a surprising encounter which is the focus of the story between Jesus and a paralyzed man who was likely a paraplegic who had been that way as we're told in verse 5 for 38 years. And Jesus sees him. He knows this about him probably in a similar way that he knew something about the Samaritan's woman, woman's life and past. And he says and asks him this simple question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? We might think, well, of course. Isn't that obvious? Isn't that why this man is here at this pool? But it's a really important question. Not just for this man, but for all of us. It's a question that Jesus is asking, not just this paralytic, but also all of Israel as he comes And returns and in him Yahweh God returns to his people. Do you want to get well? When we encounter God he brings change. He doesn't just confirm our prior convictions. God after all is the living God. The God who in the spirit blows wherever he wills. The God who turns the world upside down and transforms people. Do we want this? Or do we want to hang on to what we know, to what's familiar, to cherished habits and practices? Do we want to retain control? Think of how God dealt with Abram long ago. He shows up in his life and he says, go to the land where I will show you. Begin to follow me. I haven't shown you the destination yet. You've lost control, but follow me. And turns his life upside down so that Abram has to step out, leaving what's familiar, leaving all that he knows to walk with this God. We think of a negative example of the rich young ruler who, after his encounter with Jesus, Jesus walks away sad. Because he didn't want the change that Jesus was asking him to make in his life. Jesus is asking this question, do you want to get well? He's asking it to the whole nation of God's people because in him, he's saying, God is returning among you. Will you let go? Will you let him break your categories and your traditions? New wine has to be poured, Jesus will say, into new wineskins. If it's poured into old wineskins, they'll break. You must be born again, he says. Something new has arrived that will change everything. Do we want to get well? Quite frankly, some of us don't. We don't want to let go. We don't want to surrender control. We want to hang on to what's familiar. Mandy and I met in college. And during our college years, we became friends with a homeless man whose name was Daryl. We built a relationship with him over time. And sometimes we'd bring him into my dorm and let him take a shower and get cleaned up. And it became a meaningful relationship. Finally, after some time, some other Christians on our campus and Mandy and I were able to secure Daryl a spot at the Sunrise Mission, a rescue mission in St. Louis. We had some connections to that mission from some missions work we had done in East St. Louis. But we secured him a spot in a year-long residential program to help 
men who had been homeless get their feet on the ground again. So we bought him a one-way ticket on the Greyhound bus from Memphis to St. Louis and had a goodbye party for him. And then we took him to the bus terminal and gave him a hug and sent him off. And he got to the mission and he became really a star of the program. He was loved by the staff. He was put in positions of leadership. He began to manage their food pantry and Mandy and I then graduated, we moved to Colorado, and at New Year's time, we flew back to St. Louis and spent a weekend with Daryl just to encourage him, and it was a happy time. He was doing wonderfully well and really grateful. And then a few months later in the spring, just before he was to graduate, we got a call from the woman who ran the mission, and she said, you know, I have bad news. Daryl walked out of the program just a few days ago, and I wanted to let you know. And she was devastated and everyone was surprised. And I said, well, what do you think it was? Why? And she said to me, I think he was afraid of succeeding, of all the change that that would mean in his life. And so as it confronted the end and what that would mean about a different way of living, he just walked out. She said, we've seen it happen before many times. Do we want to get well? I wonder if some of us only want to go so far when God is asking for all of us, for all that we are, to be given over to him. Yeah, it's scary indeed. And it means that life will not be what it was, but it will be so much better. The man responds to this question in verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. There's nobody here to help me. At least that's what he thinks from his limited perspective. He's been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know how long he's been at this pool, but every time he hears the water stirred, he probably starts to kind of crawl his way to the pool and others beat him there and get in front of him. And this has happened time after time after time in his life. You can imagine just how discouraged this man is, how shaped he is by his condition. Jesus doesn't really engage on that, does he? Verse 8, get up, he says. Pick up your mat and walk. And immediately in verse 9, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. It is not an angel. It is not the stirred waters of this pool. It is none of that superstition work that brings healing. It is Jesus. The word of Jesus. That brings this man exactly what he needs. Jesus has the power to heal. 38 years of this condition gone. With a word from Jesus. What a change. All this physical healing in this man's life is pointing as a sign in John's gospel to the deeper realities that Jesus has come to bring healing to the world that is broken by sin. The signs always point beyond themselves to something deeper about Jesus and his work and his ministry. And we are to marvel as we look at this sign at, at the Jesus who comes to bring and make things, comes to bring healing and make things whole. We read in Isaiah 35 that when God would make things new, the lame would leap like a deer. And we can't help but think that that's in the background of what's going on here. That Jesus is signifying that day has come. The healing of the world has come in me. 
not just to the people around this pool, but to the whole world, to the nations. I have brought this healing. That's the surprising encounter. But that encounter in this surprising place, thirdly, leads to a surprising response. And this response gives us some deeper layers to thinking about that question, do you want to get well? Which is a question I would submit not only includes an initial encounter with Jesus, but an ongoing growth with Jesus toward wholeness and health in our lives. There's the response of the Jews. They're upset. Why? Because we're told in verse 9b that this miracle took place on the Sabbath. Sabbath was one of the three major identity markers for the people of God alongside food laws and circumcision. And a large oral tradition had grown up around the Sabbath to put fences around this institution in order to preserve and protect this day from being violated. And these prohibitions included in the Mishnah the carrying of a burden from one place to another. This is mentioned in Jeremiah 17 verse 21. Do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day. But the Jewish leaders of the day had overinterpreted that prohibition, which seemed to be against trade and the commodification of the Sabbath, and made it something that was burdensome and difficult. And so what's amazing is all that they could see, this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, was standing in front of them, healed and walking, and all that they could see was he was carrying his mat, and in their minds then breaking the Sabbath. Verse 10, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Further, in their minds, the Sabbath was not a day for healings to be done at all. Yes, they did allow for, if sickness or situations were life-threatening, they allowed for there to be medical attention given to those in need on the Sabbath. But everything else could wait. And certainly a condition that had existed for 38 years didn't have to be dealt with on this particular day. Why didn't Jesus just wait? Well, it's pretty clear that Jesus is intentionally provoking them. We know that this was not the only miracle that he did on the Sabbath. In verse 16, we read, because he was doing these things, plural, on the Sabbath, that they began to persecute him. And from the synoptic accounts, we get other stories of Jesus doing miraculous works on the Sabbath. Their religious scrupulosity about the Sabbath, about keeping the Sabbath, had blinded them to the priority of human need. It had caused a distortion in who they were as people who sought to follow God. And it had blinded them to the purpose of the Sabbath, which was a gift given by God to be put into the weekly rhythms of his people as a gift of restoration and renewal. That by doing no work and keeping the Sabbath day holy, God's people would be rerooted and grounded in their identity as the grace-given people of God that they were. It was to be a, a, a day of celebration and rest. And it had become a burden. No, their response to this miracle is surprising because all they can see is a threat to their tradition. And to their control of life as they know it. To their way of doing things in that moment. They cling to their old wineskins. Do you want to get well? Are you willing to let go? Are you willing to let go of control? 
to let go of cherished practices and habits that God may be asking you to change. Leslie Newbegin writes about this text and this strategy. He says, the strategies by which the Jews seek to exclude the possibility that the living God himself might be confronting them in this man are but local and temporary examples of the strategies by which all human beings seek to protect themselves within their worlds of thought and belief. We hold on to what is familiar. We cling to what we know. We want to control our world. And so we fail to see. Do you want to get well? Be willing to let go. Not only the first time, but as an ongoing practice of Christian discipleship to grow in becoming more and more well. We let go. There is the response not only of the Jewish leaders to Jesus, but also of this man, or or sorry, of Jesus to this man in verse 14. The man didn't know who had healed him. And when the the Jewish leaders asked, he he said, I don't know, because Jesus had slipped away in the crowd. And so Jesus finds the man in the temple, hopefully there giving praise to God for the healing that had just occurred in his life or authenticating his healing before the priest. And Jesus simply says to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. This is surprising for us. We see Jesus here again as the one full of grace and truth. The grace represented in see you are well again. And the action of healing that Jesus gave to this man. The truth spoken bluntly. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. In other words, you've been given this gift by grace. You've been given this gift of healing. Your life has been transformed. Now live in a way that is consistent with that gift that you have been given. Stop sinning. Sin no more. We think of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. After her accusers all leave, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is the way that you can continue to walk in the wholeness that I have brought to you by my grace in your life. It is to walk in the way of holiness and sin no more. Now, many of you probably are looking at this thinking, wow, Jesus seems to connect this man's sin to his condition of being paralyzed. And it is true that Jesus does seem to make that connection here. Jesus, of course, knows things about every one of us that we do not know. But in general, we should not make the link and the connection between one's physical sufferings or circumstantial sufferings and and one's own sin. That link is broken by a book like the book of Job, and it's broken explicitly by Jesus in John chapter 9 as he deals with the blind man. When he says this man was not blind because of something that he had done. So we need to be extremely careful as the church not to do what Jesus is doing here. And Jesus has the right to do as the Lord and King. And there is that possibility that our physical suffering can be connected to sin. But as a general rule, we know that often these things have nothing to do with one another. And certainly as mere mortals who cannot see, that should be our posture that we take with those who are suffering. Without ruling out the possibility that Jesus seems to include here. Do you want to get well? The second surprising response of Jesus to the man suggests that don't just have an encounter. But now walk into the life that Jesus has invited you into. By rejecting the way of rebellion against God and his world and his truth and his word. And pursuing a life of holiness that is robust and substantial. 
And then there's Jesus' response to the Jewish leaders, which points to the truth about himself and his own identity, which again is the theme of the Gospel of John, and it seems to be the theme of every story that we encounter in John's Gospel. Who is this one? Who is he? Then the leaders, they find out that Jesus is the one who had healed this man on the Sabbath and told him to pick up his mat. They start to persecute him in verse 16. And his response is simple. My father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. In other words, the key to what Jesus is doing, the key to his authority to do these things, the key is that phrase, my father, this unique relationship between Jesus and the father. Only one time does Jesus use our father, and it's when he teaches us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. But every other time Jesus speaks of my father, pointing to this mysterious connection between him and his father. This is the connection that the Gospel of John has the burden to elucidate, not to explain. One could never explain such a great mystery as the Incarnation, but to elucidate this mystery, this unique relationship between the Father and the Son. It is that relationship to which Jesus points that defends his healing work on the Sabbath. Because he says, because every Jew would know that God continues to work on the Sabbath. People are born, people die. God in his governance over the created world continues to do what they termed holy work. It was human beings who were not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. And Jesus, by saying, my father is working up to now and I also am working, is placing himself perilously close to the divine side of that equation. So close that in verse 18, they accuse him of calling himself equal with God and they set out to kill him. This is what begins in John's gospel to raise the conflict now, to raise the temperature of that conflict that ultimately culminates in Jesus's passion and death at the cross. My father, Jesus says, I have the authority to do this. I have the authority to reclaim the Sabbath day as a day of restoration and renewal, which your traditions have covered up and made bondage, put, put people in bondage over. This is what it's all about. God returning to bring life. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Jesus is saying, then know me. Know who I am. Know my unique relationship with the Father. Know that in me, God has come to dwell and visit among his people and to set them free. Know that I've done that work of liberation and rescue, the new exodus work that brings you into a new Sabbath rest, a genuine rest of wholeness and renewal. That has come about through my death and resurrection. And this has the power to overcome 38 years of bondage. Far more than that, actually. It has the power to overcome sin, evil, and even death itself. It's no surprise that the story of John's gospel moves us to the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Do you want to get well? Then know this Jesus. Let go of your cherished traditions. Begin to walk in a way that is marked by holiness and get to know this one in whom God has visited his people. Do you want to get well?
Let's pray. Oh God, we, we do long to be made well. By your touch, by your power, through your death and the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Lord, restore us, we pray, to the fullness of life, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even as we face really challenging circumstances in our world and in our lives. We pray that we would know the fullness of your life in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.